First, I will explain a little bit about the shrine and the statue, which I would have done anyway, but I've been asked. And also about the two different traditions of Buddhism. There are two different traditions called Theravadan and Mahayana. Theravada means the teaching of the elders, and Mahayana means the great vehicle. Mahayana is comprised of the Tibetan tradition, then Chan, and is often called the Northern tradition because it went to the northern countries, Tibet in the north, Japan and China, Korea. Theravadan is sometimes called the southern tradition, Burma, Sri Lanka and Thailand. Theravadan can be called in our way of thinking the fundamentalist tradition. It bases itself on the Pali Canon, which is a collection of discourses and a collection of the rules for monks and nuns and also a collection of the Abhidhamma comprising numerous volumes, approximately 17,500 discourses, almost all by the Buddha, some by his great disciples, Sariputta, Mughalana, Ananda, most by the Buddha, divided into different Nikayas, different collections. Now the collections were made, of course, much later. Buddha didn't do that. Buddha just gave discourses telling people how to practice. The discourses were transmitted from teacher to disciple orally for approximately 250 years after the Parinibbana of the Buddha. Parinibbana means Nibbana without remainder which means death. But in the case of a Buddha, it is called Parinibbana, Nibbana without a remainder. When one attains Nibbana during one's life, it's called Nibbana, which means with remainder, namely body. Body is still there, but at death, body then also disappears, falls into dust eventually, and it's Nibbana without remainder. For 250 years after Parinibbana of the Buddha, it was still transmitted orally. In those days, it was considered to be sacrilegious to write down religious teachings. One's supposed to know them by heart. But then finally, it was found that there were a great deal of argumentation and ideation and dispute about this and that. What did he say and what did he mean? And uh, nothing has changed. <laughs> and uh, 
so then it was started to write them down. It, there was it's no alphabet. Pali does not have an alphabet. It was only a spoken language. So the alphabet used to write it down is the Singhalese alphabet. It was written down in Pali in the Singhalese alphabet. And it was written down in Sri Lanka, what was called Ceylon in those days. And which has given, of course, that country a sort of an idea that they are the uh, original owners of the Buddha's discourses. And one can hardly blame them for this. It's written in their alphabet. But it doesn't mean that, of course, because today we can read Pali in the Roman alphabet. We can read it very easily if we don't have to learn the Singhalese alphabet, which is extremely difficult. It's a, a totally different letter. It's even more difficult than the Greek alphabet. After then, when it was written down, then it was called the canon, and nothing was added to it after that. It's impossible to say what happened in the first 250 years. Some things were undoubtedly added, and undoubtedly some things were lost. There's hardly any doubt in anyone's mind who has taken the trouble to study it and has tried to understand. But we have a body of teaching and a volume of instruction which is unsurpassable. And some of the stuff that was added which sounds like that, one can, if one gets used to the language which is being used by the Buddha, one can actually recognize where that language changes sometimes. And one can see that that is not the same person speaking. One can disregard those additions and one can take an intelligent stand to see what is the essence of the teaching. In about the year one of our time, there had been so many disputes and so many arguments that 18 different schools of Buddhism arose. One of them was called Hinayana, the small vehicle. Out of these 18 schools, only two are still in existence, Theravadan and Mahayana. All the others have disappeared. They were talking each other to death. The Mahayana tradition of Tibet went to Tibet from India in, a, in the 7th century, there of our time. The greatest um, originator of it was Padmasambhava, who was an Indian sage and went to Tibet and brought the teaching there. Bodhidharma is the one who 
went from China to Japan with the Zen teaching. Now, Buddhism has a very interesting quality. It adapts itself to the culture that it's been practiced in. So we, of course, have, over the past 1,200 years, that it was been practiced in Tibet, we have Tibetan Buddhism. And for the past 1,200 years, as it's been practiced in Japan, we have Japanese Buddhism. For the past 2,000 or more years that it's been practiced in Sri Lanka and in Burma and in Thailand, we have the, naturally, the cultural differences of those countries. And hopefully, maybe, one day, we're going to have American Buddhism. It's possible. The Buddha said, the Dhamma will come to the country when sons and daughters of good families can be ordained in that country in their own language and in their own conditions. He made a very strong point about the fact that the Dhamma should be spoken and taught in one's mother tongue, not in the dialect of the region, but in the language of the country. It's a discourse which is called the Exposition of Non-Conflict, and it's the same discourse which contains the formula for right speech, which I've given you twice already when to say what and how not to say it. He talks about the Dhamma there to be spoken in one's mother tongue. It's quite clear that one's mother tongue is not just a language. That's why it's called one's mother tongue. What I've learned it at the knees of one's mother. And therefore, it has far more than just words in it. It has meaning. Words have a certain deep feeling about them. When we say the word love, we know something about it. When we say the word nectar, we hope that one day we might know how to actually have that. But love has a deep meaning for us. So, Another thing that he said about the Dhamma is precision of language. He was totally aware of all our difficulties, as you might have had a glimpse of it in these days, and he realizes that language is very often a cause for misunderstanding. And primarily also misunderstanding which can have detrimental results for one's practice. Therefore, because in his day, of course, there were no books about Dhamma, were only the spoken word. He was a great um, admirer of precision language. To make it possible to be precise, there's another reason for that, not just misunderstanding. But precision language means precision thinking. If we can think precise, 
you can speak precise. And if we can't think precisely, we're not going to understand the profundity of the depth of the teaching. So precision was the thing that he was very interested in, and it's part of the same discourse, exposition of non-conflict. Naturally, over the two and a half thousand years since the teaching has gone into the world, there have been changes made. Most of them are due to the culture that the teaching has found itself in. And therefore, if we talk about or think about American Buddhism or Western Buddhism, we need to be very careful because it is very easy to dilute the teaching. And if we dilute it, we won't get the same results. We may get a taste of it. If we dilute our coffee enough, we get a taste of it. But it doesn't really is, isn't really coffee anymore. It's the same with the teaching of the Buddha. It is a very deeply penetrating practice and guideline which goes to the core of one's being. And if we dilute it too much, we can't get there we may get a taste of it. And we may find it a little easier to get along with our fellow men, which is nice enough. But it isn't what the Buddha had in mind. The Buddha had total liberation in mind. Nibbana. Complete freedom. And that can be found and that can be practiced. Today, in an affluent society, the di diluting of a very strong practice which needs discipline is almost foreshadowed. It's very difficult not to have it happen. One of the antidotes for that are still many of the Westerners who have trained in Asia as monks or nuns and have returned to the West as monks or nuns and are building a bridge between the teaching they have learned and the society they have come to live in again. There aren't that many, but it is one of the possibilities. Other than that, everybody will have to find their own way. And since we have the Buddhist teaching translated into English, <coughs> complete the whole lot, it isn't so difficult to find one's own way. 
Something about the Buddha's teaching as it is printed and has been printed for the past hundred years by the Pali Text Society in England, it's extremely repetitious because these, this is the spoken words and nobody dared to edit it in those days. Nowadays we dare. And some of the repetitions have been taken out because people find it so difficult. We are living in a fast, instant society. Everything's got to be quick. Machines are doing our work for us. When they break down, we get somebody who fixes machines. So we're not used to slow and patient repetition. And because of that, people find it difficult to read the Buddha's original words. And so some editing has taken place, but very little. It's been done very carefully. Usually instead of the repetition, we find dot, 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 dot. And, uh, or it says C above or something like that. And if one really wants to know what did the Buddha say, one can find out. One of the difficulties that people run into with that is that although the language is utterly simple and the instructions completely clear-cut, without having practice behind one, one still doesn't know what is actually meant. One has to really get into it and stay with it. We're going to do that in the next four weeks. We will take a discourse, I will take a discourse of the Buddha and read the words out and explain them. The discourse is very short, only a few pages, I'm not sure, maybe ten pages in a, in a book, but it contains everything from where we are now until Nibbana. It has all the instructions what to do, the whole lot. So, of course, if that is contained within maybe even only eight pages, it needs a fair bit of explanation. The reason I'm saying this is because if you do get interested in reading the Buddha's uh, discourses, the words of the Buddha, remember that each sentence contains the instructions for practice. They're not just sentences. They're complete guidelines and instructions. So to read one discourse is not like reading a book. The way to read it is to take it in, maybe half a page, check out what the instructions are, and then remember them, and try to follow them, and check back again on them, then evaluate whether one has been able to follow them, and only when one is quite sure that that half page has actually been done to go to the next one. Not the way we read our books in today's society. 
The Theravadan tradition is the basis for all traditions. Containing the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, it is the uh, foundation and the fundamental aspect of any other tradition. Although sometimes these words that we use in this one are not heard in the other traditions, it all has to be built up upon that one. Naturally, there have been enlightened beings in other countries who have given teachings and some of those teachings are used in other traditions. In this one, it's always the Buddha. That's why we can say quite truthfully the Buddha said, because that's the only suttas that the only discourses we use. There are some, as I said, by Sariputta, but they've always been, and by Ananda, they've always been confirmed by the Buddha. It's quite funny, actually. Sometimes the Buddha would give a discourse to a group of people, quite short and succinct, telling them exactly what to do, and then he'd go away. And then the people would go to Sariputta and say, you know, we didn't quite understand what he said. Could you explain that again? And so then Sariputta would elaborate on this and give a long discourse on the same subject. And then they'd listen to that and they'd say, oh, yes, thank you very much. And then they'd go back to the Buddha and say, you know, Sariputta said this and this. Is this all right? And then the Buddha said, yes. Sariputta is very wise. He told you the truth exactly the way I would have said so too. It's quite funny, they weren't satisfied with what the Buddha said, so they went to the Hariputta. They weren't satisfied with that either and went back to the Buddha. <laughs> so we have that confirmation that they did say the right thing. In our tradition, we have a great lack of female symbolism. Usually what we have on a shrine is a Buddha statue. And we would have had one, and I have brought a tiny little one now, if somebody had brought one. But all the people who were uh, engaged in setting this retreat up didn't have one at home. The Buddha statue is nothing but a symbol. It's a symbol of the enlightened mind. You know, man and his symbols. We hang pictures on our walls and we have symbols everywhere in this place. We don't know what the Buddha really looks like. In his day, there were no statues. The first statue is that is in existence and known to be the first statue was made in the year 300 BC, and it can be found in Sanat in the museum. It's a very beautiful, over-life-sized statue that obviously the uh, sculptor also couldn't have known the Buddha. It is mentioned sometimes in the suttas that he was very good-looking, 
that you had a, a radiant skin and um, was a strong person and a good-looking person. And that's all we know. So all the statues that have ever been made of the Buddha, and there are, of course, to be found everywhere, have been made in the imagination of the one who is making the statue. And they're usually, in fact, I would say always, depicting the beauty ideal of the country where they come from. So we have Singhali statues, Burmese statues, Thai statues, Tibetan statues, Japanese statues, and they're always concerned with what is considered beautiful in that country. Once when I was in London, I visited a meditation center and they had a beautiful standing Buddha statue there and I was absolutely sure it looked like an Englishman. <laughs> it was a very, very nice statue. It's the only Western Buddhist statue I've ever seen. I don't know if there are others. There may be. I don't know. But we have no female symbolism. So what we have here on this shrine is a Kuan Yin. She is the symbol for the Buddha's compassion. Now she comes from the Chinese tradition. And there are Chinese temples, Buddhist temples, who only have Kuan Yin in them, and no Buddha at all, no Buddha statue at all. I've been in one very beautiful one in Singapore, Kuan Yin temple, very beautiful. This particular Kuan Yin, <laughs> I found in this little Danish town what's it called here in California somewhere, serving in a, in a gift shop, and it's made in Mexico. <laughs> it's pottery. And because it's made from pottery, after I had um, got it, I didn't like to take it with me on the plane because I was afraid it was going to completely break up into bits and pieces. So I left it here with Barbara and that's why we have it here. I have made a point of having a Kuan Yin on, on all the shrines in every center where I'm resident. Because of the femininity that it imparts to the otherwise completely masculine symbols that we see, now, in Tibetan tradition, there are feminine symbols. There's white and green Tara. But in Theravada tradition, nothing. And in Japanese tradition, also nothing. But in Chinese tradition, Kuan Yin is very important. And actually, believed to have been alive. And having been a bodhisattva who is a person striving for enlightenment 
and having become enlightened and her particular ability is to rescue drowning sailors and innumerable stories are told about this where it happened and usually it's connected to having seen a blue light and then this rescue takes place whether there's any truth to these stories or not I have no way of knowing I only know the story Kwanin as a symbol of the Buddha's compassion usually I'm not in this case usually carries in her right hand a bottle which she pours out over mankind which contains the milk of human kindness but I'm afraid this one doesn't have that she is usually depicted as a mature woman and there are some very very beautiful statues in China in, in the museums for, made from marble some from wood and they go back hundreds and hundreds of years she's been a Chinese symbol of compassion for probably a thousand years now so actually I have borrowed her I have borrowed her from another tradition and I don't feel any compunction about that because it is um, just a symbol that's all but in order to have it more traditional I have now brought my little traveling Buddha and put him in front <laughs> he's Indian uh, sandalwood and very typical Indian carving it's very small because I travel with him the other thing that we have on a shrine in this tradition are candles and the candles are the symbol for enlightenment the light in the mind when the light has become complete that means that there are no dark spots left that nothing is impure anymore so the candle as a symbol for enlightenment flowers are usually put there and you will be doing that yourself not as pots but as cut flowers because they symbolize impermanence just as the flowers are beautiful for one two or three days and then wilt and have to be thrown on the compost the same with us we are very beautiful for one two or three decades and then we start wilting quite markedly until we get thrown on the compost heap to remind us why should we be reminded of that all the time so that we use every day fruitfully that we know what's important in this life so that we can use our time to the greatest benefit of ourselves and others not to hope for the future not to get caught up in the daily activities not to have fantasies but to live now 
the way we think life is to be lived. And then we have something that we will put there now, which uh, during a course I don't um, like to have, and that's incense. And the incense symbolizes the beautiful aroma that goes far and wide, which comes from a totally virtuous person. So that symbol has the connotation, all these symbols have the connotation, this is possible for each one to achieve. The Buddha statue and also the Kuan Yin, the enlightenment, enlightenment process and the enlightenment ideal which we can commit ourselves to. The same with the candles, then remembering our impermanence and committing ourselves to living the best way we know how now, and the incense, the virtue which we can arouse in ourselves. It is a a tradition to prostrate three times in front of the shrine. Three times means two things. It means to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And it also means that when we do it three times, we mean it. It's an Indian tradition that if one asks the teacher a question, the teacher may or may not answer. If we ask the teacher three times, he's obligated to answer. Because that means we really want to know. It's not idle chatter. So very often we will find in the Buddha's teaching that things are repeated three times. In this case, it also means that we are prostrating to Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. First one, the enlightenment ideal, Buddha. Not a person, not a statue, nothing. The enlightenment ideal, as depicted in the statue which we put there. Dhamma, the teaching, which is the universal absolute truth which we can manifest in ourselves. We can become the Dhamma. And Sangha in this case certainly does not mean everybody who crosses their legs and sits on a little pillow. It also doesn't mean everybody who wears robes. In this case Sangha means those who have become enlightened and have been responsible for propagating the Dhamma further. And this is what we do when we take refuge. We prostrate three times to the shrine, but when we take refuge, that's exactly what we do. We take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, enlightenment ideal, 
a teaching which is universal and absolute truth. And the Buddha taught Dhamma and not Buddhism. Buddhism is a new idea. Dhamma is what the Buddha taught. And Sangha, those who have become enlightened with following that path and have propagated it. Taking refuge in those three means that we've found a safe place. There's no safe place anywhere on this little planet of ours. Every single place, whether it is physical or in our own heart, is always due to destruction. In our own hearts and minds, we have the danger of falling down on the into the negative. We have the danger of being deluded and we have the danger of the lack of wisdom. But Buddha Dhamma Sangha are no danger. Complete protection if we can devote ourselves and commit ourselves to it. It doesn't mean to become anything. We are already everything that we can ever become. It doesn't mean to join a club. That's only another ego affirmation. It means that we are devoting ourselves to the absolute truth and committing ourselves to the practice of it. And having that, as a foundation in heart and mind brings about a feeling of safety and security and a feeling of joy. And those three are essential on the meditative path. Because even if we can concentrate, the meditative path, which is not embedded in the spiritual protection can very often go in the wrong direction and often does. It goes in the wrong direction of what Shogyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism. If he will be remembered for anything, that will be his epitaph. It's a most wonderful expression. If we realize that we are bowing down to the greatest idea out of humility and out of letting go of personal opinions, we have already taken a step in the right direction. Humility is not a sense of inferiority. The two are not the same. Humility is giving oneself fully to the highest and recognizing that the me will never be that, but that there is such a thing. So taking refuge is a great assistance on the meditative path. And connected to that, we will take also the precepts, which means 
that we are quite publicly advocating that we're going to undertake this practice. It is more effective than doing it by oneself, although that too is effective. But if we do it in front of our peers, it seems to have a little more of an impact on our psyche. So all we're doing with the precept is we undertake the training to refrain from. And at the same time that we also make up our mind to practice the opposite, which I explained last night. Before I explain the practicalities of doing it, maybe if you have any questions, now is the time to ask them. Yes. It's one of the steps on the Noble Eightfold Path, and I'm afraid in a week's course I can't get to every point of that. I only explained the very first one, the right view, and a little bit of the second one, the right intention. The next aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path is the moral conduct, right speech, right action, right livelihood. These three are the parts of that. So it belongs to the teaching as far as the guidelines are concerned. And put the flower on first so you've got your hands free. <laughs> put the flower on first and then light you light the candles and then the incense and then you prostrate. Okay? Yes. It's a good practice. And it's done in Theravadan countries quite frequently that one chants the refuge and precept every morning before meditation. And you can do it to yourself, with by yourself. If you have a little uh, place for your meditation and you go in there, do that as the first thing in the morning. If you have somebody else there too, that's fine. But you can do it by yourself. It's a... Uh, just so that it doesn't become mechanical. A lot of repetition sometimes makes things mechanical. Anything else? Yes. What's your reference to Sri Lanka? Uh, in Sri Lanka, 
very few people meditate, period. Men, women, monks, nuns. Some do, certainly, but very few. About as many as in America. I mean, percentage-wise. If you take it percentage-wise, it's the same percentage. A small percentage. Uh, probably far more people in America meditate than in Sri Lanka because there are far more people here. A 250 million in America and there's about 15 million in Sri Lanka. Uh, there isn't any particular group of women in Sri Lanka that meditate. There are nuns, about 2,000 nuns in Sri Lanka, not very much respected. Uh, the, there are three Western nuns in Sri Lanka. That includes me. I'm not there now. Um, and um, two of us have tried to uplift the status of the nuns in Sri Lanka, and a little bit of it has happened. And uh, one thing one can say about women in Sri Lanka that more of them go to the temple than men. But that doesn't mean that they're meditating. I mean, there are more women going to the temple than, there, than men. Um, and what was your reference to here? That there are more women in the meditation courses, or what? Oh. Apparently, apparently, I, 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 they seem to feel quite a strong need for that. I think that's an outcome of the feminist movement. Yes. I, I do not give only women's meditation courses.
Dhoteyampidammangsaranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Dhoteyampi sanghangsaranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Hatiampi budhang saranangachami. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Hatiampi dhammang saranangachami. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Hatiampi sanghang saranangachami. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Hanagamanang sampunang. Hanasipatta veramanisika. Pradam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adina dana veramani sika fedam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame so I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from lying and harsh words. Sura Miriam Majapamaditana Veramani Sika Fadam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from drugs and alcohol. Isaranena sadhim panchasinang dhammang sadukang turakitang katva pamadena sampadeka. This means may the taking of refuge and precepts be for your benefit and happiness.
we have now successfully come to the end of this meditation retreat and I think I just like to say a few words about the continuation of your practice in your daily life as you find yourself again in your ordinary and everyday surroundings where naturally it will be more difficult to keep to this discipline nobody's going to ring bells and you're going to have to ring your own bells and there won't be a whole lot of people sitting there so that you don't want to feel the odd man out. On the contrary, there'll be nobody sitting there and you're going to be the odd one out that's going to sit down possibly because there's nobody else doing it. And because of that reason, it is extremely important and helpful to have a group to meditate with at least once a week. If you can arrange to have let's say a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon or evening with some companions where there are two people, that's a group. So if you haven't um, anyone near you, start one. That's the best way to go about it. I've been now in this center in, my, uh, center in Germany for two and a half years and in that time we I think we have had 16 groups start each one with one person and many of them now have 20 coming regularly once a week to sit together and of course some only have three or four but it doesn't matter and also if you do that organize with the other people, what you want to do, get together and make a plan. First we'll sit and then you might listen to a tape or somebody brings something along they have read which has been inspiring. So they read that out and have a cup of tea together or whatever you like to do. To have companions on the spiritual path, those that have the same direction and the same priority is so important. And I'm sure there are many people in this Bay Area who are meditating, so maybe you can find a group that you can join or start one yourself. At home, have a corner. Any corner, anywhere, as your meditation room. If you can give a whole room to it, wonderful. Most people will have to be content with a corner, which is fine. And leave your pillow in that place. Decorate it with a picture 
or a statue or some flowers or leave it totally bare, whichever attracts you. But have your pillow there and then have a timer, a timing device. So that every morning you can go there without having to rush through the house trying to find the pillow and trying to find your timer. Leave it there. We don't take our chairs out of the dining room. We don't take our pots and pans out of the kitchen. We don't carry our towels all over the place, but we leave them in the bathroom because this is where we're going to do this. And also it helps. You go past this place during the day and it reminds you, I'm going to go there and meditate. If you can manage to go every day at the same time, this is very good. The mind is very habitually orientated. If you go every day at the same time, it's much easier. I'm sure you have felt the habit also here in the daily schedule. It becomes much easier after a few days. The timer is important. If you don't have any timing device, you might sit down and say, okay, today, one whole hour. And then you sit down and you meditate and meditate and meditate. And then the mind says, well, that's at least an hour, if not more. And then you get up and then you go in the kitchen and it was 10 minutes. (laughs) And of course you don't go back because now you're in the kitchen so you have to make breakfast. But if your timer hasn't rung yet, you know very well it isn't the time that you have decided upon yet. So wait and sit. If you remember I told you the sitting itself brings benefit. In the first instance, it makes good karma because it is the right intention. In the second instance, it counteracts lock and torpor because at least we're trying. And if we do succeed to concentrate even for a little while, we have every moment of concentration is one moment of purification. And as we do have continued application to the meditation subject, our doubts are also alleviated. So we have immediate benefit. So make up your mind how long. If you're a beginner, start with 30 minutes and add to it. After two or three weeks, add five minutes to it until you work up to an hour. It's much preferable to the other way around. Because if you start with an hour and it becomes too much for you, it will eventually wind up with nothing if you deduct from it. So start with 30 minutes and work up. If you have been an experienced meditator already, an hour is a good time. If you want to start with 45 minutes with new regime, by all means, but work up to an hour. And a rule of thumb is one hour in the morning, one hour at night. But as I said, work up 
to it. Don't work down from it. Because now the impetus is there. And then six weeks later, it looks different. So when you get home, don't make a resolution, I'm going to meditate for the rest of my life. It's too long. Make a resolution, I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning. And then make that same resolution every single evening. I'm going to meditate tomorrow morning. Go to bed with that resolution. Make it quite strong. And you'll wake up with it. And you remember it. It's very helpful to start every meditation session with appreciation of yourself. Gratitude for all that you have. Gratitude to all the people you know. Appreciation of your own abilities and goodness and forgiveness for anything that you think you've done wrong. If this is an important aspect of your life, then forgive everybody else you know also. All that is not only helpful for your whole inner being, but it helps the meditation. Books are very helpful. In fact, it is interesting how helpful they can be, and so are tapes. But only if one reads or listens to them with the intention to follow through on it. If it's read or heard as another interesting aspect of human life, just another one of those many possibilities of knowing things, it will not change one. But if we read a book on the Dhamma or listen to a tape on the Dhamma and then have that determination to actually do that, what is written or said there, then it can have enormous repercussions. Our mind is extremely changeable and also very easily influenced. So if we influence it with the good things, with that which is inspiring and uplifting, obviously that's what we're going to think and then do. So be careful about the input in the mind just as much as you're careful as the input into the body. Everybody's careful about the input into the body. So do the same for the mind. When you do join a group or start a group of meditators, you will find noble friends. You will find that these friends become important. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to scrap all the old friends. Maybe go to their houses and say, look, I'm not coming anymore, you're not spiritual enough, or something like that. That also isn't a very good way of doing it. But as you become more and more interested 
on the spiritual path, you will find that the right kind of people will also be around you. This is always common interest makes for friendship. If we are too disinterested of, of the things that other people do, friendship is difficult. Other than those two aspects, or shall I say three, the group, the meditation at home, and the input into the mind, one of the greatest support systems for meditation and for the spiritual life is mindfulness. And I would like to, as a last addition to all the other information that you have received now tell you what clear comprehension is. Clear comprehension which is the adjunct to mindfulness is an important aspect of our daily activities. Now the first step is mindfulness. Mindfulness, which means knowing what's going on. But it doesn't have judgment or discrimination in it. A thief who would like to break into the vault of a bank would have to have exquisite mindfulness. Otherwise, he'd have to, he would be tripping the wires that would raise the alarm. And the mindfulness of the trying to find the right combination on the combination lock would be probably equal to the kind of one-pointedness that we need in meditation. But he doesn't have clear comprehension. Therefore, our mindfulness has to be co-joined with clear comprehension. And the Buddha mentioned those two together many, many times. Sati and Sampanyanya, the two together. Clear comprehension has four parts. The first one is, what's the purpose of what I'm either thinking, saying or doing? Have I got a purpose behind it? Now, our thief might say, well, my purpose is to get rich. The bank's much too rich. I can have part of that. So he still has a purpose. We have to find out whether we have any purpose at all. If we look for the purpose, idle chatter is also diminished because we can check out that there's no purpose. So it comes back to our intentions and motivations. Am I just trying to amuse myself? Am I trying to distract myself? Or am I trying to accomplish something worthwhile? Now, sometimes there may be value in distracting oneself. It's not always 
a no-no. If the mind feels that it has become very tense in trying to do something, it may be quite useful to distract it from whatever it is trying to think or do and just let go. But we need to know what's the purpose. And then the next question is, am I using the most skillful means for accomplishing that purpose? Now maybe I want to tell somebody something. Well, am I skillful at it? Or am I beating around the bush? Or am I saying things I don't even want to say? Or am I saying things which come out quite differently from what I mean? What kind of means am I using? Have I got the skill to do what I intend to do? And if I haven't got it, how am I going to get this skill? Are there more skillful means? Skillful means is a word and a phrase that the Buddha uses often. We can, sometimes we may have a good intention, but because the skill isn't there, that good intention, the purpose, will not come to fruition. It may be something like a mental action, like a bull in a china shop. If we haven't got that kind of skill to speak or act that is really harmonious, then we need to think again how we're going to get that skill. And then comes the third factor, which is the most important one. And that is, is the purpose and other means within the Dhamma. Now, here, our thief falls down. Stealing from the bank is certainly not a Dhamma action. But with the purpose and the skillful means, he might have been all right still, because maybe he was very skillful. So this third one has to accompany all our inquiries. The means are never justified by the end. The means have to be as much in the Dhamma as the purpose at the end. So we can always check back on the means and the purpose according to the five precepts. And if we do that, we might actually also, in order to strengthen that, use their opposites and see whether they fall into line with refraining from the five and developing their opposites. And we have absolute guidelines. We don't have to guess. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to justify. It's absolutely clear. 
Now that doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes. It's natural and human to make mistakes. But at least we will know when we make a mistake. And having made it, we might find more skillful means to not make it again. And then the last one, the fourth one is, have I accomplished my purpose? And if not, why not? What went wrong? Without blaming somebody else. What did I do wrong so that the purpose did not fruit? What the other person did wrong, that's their business. If they've heard about the Dhamma Mibra, they're checking up too. But that's none of our business. What have I done wrong? And if I have found that the means were not so skillful, then maybe I can obtain the skill. And if I found that the purpose wasn't a good one in the first place, I may be very grateful that it didn't fruit. Or I might see that I may have been mistaken that it was part of Dhamma practice. Four steps. It doesn't take as long as it takes me to say it. It can be done very quickly in the mind. What's the purpose? What are the skillful means? Is it within the Dhamma? Am I accomplishing my purpose? And if we check up on all the things that we think, say and do with those four in mind, we will find that life is much easier. Our relationships are easier. Our way of being is easier. Everything is much easier. It is oiled. It flows. Mindfulness and clear comprehension can be our two companions in daily life. And as they are and become our two companions, we are well protected. As we use these over and over again, it becomes habitual. And if we check up on ourselves and not on other people, we're taking full responsibility for everything that happens to us. We know what it means to be the owner of our karma. There's a story of the Buddha which illustrates that a bit and I will tell you that. I mentioned already that the Buddha being a reformer was not very much liked by the Brahmin priests because he effectually took away their livelihood. So they were his antagonists and one time the Buddha was giving a discourse, a Dhamma talk. And in the middle of it, one of the Brahmin priests got up and started walking back and forth in front of the Buddha, which in itself is already very impolite. Somebody's talking, you have somebody walking back and forth like that. And then when there was a pause by the Buddha, taking a breath or something. This Brahmin started abusing the Buddha. 
he said that he was teaching a false doctrine, that he was a disturber of families because he took the young man to become monks instead of plowing the fields, that he should be chased out of the country, that he was a menace to family life and society. And he was using harsh language and great anger. And the Buddha waited till he was finished. And then he said to him, to him, Brahmin, do you ever have guests in your house? And the Brahmin said, well, of course I have guests in my house. And the Buddha said, and when you have guests in your house, do you offer them hospitality? Do you give them food and drink? And the Brahmin said, well, of course I give them food and drink. And the Buddha said, and if they don't accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? And the Brahmin said, well, it belongs to me, of course, it belongs to me. The Buddha said, that's right, Brahmin, it belongs to you. In other words, the abuse and the anger which the Brahmin was spitting out belonged to him. And if you can remember this story in daily life, you will find that it is a great help. It belongs to the one who's got the anger. It doesn't belong to the one one is angry at. And it's, of course, vice versa. If we do it, it belongs to us. It's a, a story which we can apply to ourselves many times in our lives. I think you have now heard enough. <laughs> if you have any questions, this is the time. <laughs> don't <laughs> you do, n do n not need to feel badly about that it is strictly a person's uh, own wish or idea to do that it does, doesn't have a, you know, any repercussions <laughs> it's, um, it's a showing of respect which is nice and uh, if you had it in mind but have forgotten it, that's just as good. <laughs> and um, it is a tradition, but it should the traditions are um, to be used only, I think, it's my personal opinion, that traditions should only be used if one means them. One shouldn't use traditions just because they're traditions. Because they become, and I've seen that in Asia, and I've spent 25 years of my life in Asia, I've seen that in Asia, that traditions become mechanical, and then there's nothing behind it. So it is a tradition, but um, since all of us forget things, if you have the feeling for it, that's just as good. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's right, yes. It is a tradition, uh, not just with a teacher, this belongs to the tradition of monks and nuns. See, in the Theravadan countries, um, monks are highly respected. 
And uh, if you become uh, a nun that is teaching, you will also be highly respected. And so this is a show of respect in the Theravadan country. So it is a tradition. It's not just for the teacher, but it's particularly for the uh, monks and nuns. But as I say, it should only be done if one really feels it. Yes, it's, uh, it wouldn't hurt to uh, have a few new traditions brought in which are actually quite old, but if one feels it from the heart. So, anything else? That last chance. Hmm. Thank you for coming also. <laughs> oh, yes, um, next year. Well, I have set aside the month of April uh, from the beginning to the uh, 2nd of May for California, but unfortunately this place is not available. Now, for me, it is really important to be that it is the month of April because I will be coming from Australia and then only going back to Germany. So it is first of all cheaper on the air ticket and secondly easier on the jet lag. This time I went back from Australia to Germany and then again here, which is really uh, difficult. Uh, it was my choice. Um, so in future and also in the past, I always come from Germany to Australia to America back to Germany so April is the month but this very lovely place unfortunately is not available so we are having uh, um, a search and uh, uh, two people here have also said that they would look and Barbara will be looking in the next 30 days while I'm still here hopefully and then um, now we're going to the Holy Redeemer, which is in Oakland, which we have, have never used yet. If it is uh, nice, uh, we might be able to get that one. But I am afraid that it is not as quiet as here. This is a wonderfully quiet place. I think we're going to have that. I think, I don't know, we haven't been yet. Uh, so you're all on the mailing list. So, um, as we um, continue with this, hopefully that you will get a, a notice in the mail where next April's course will take place. Yes. Right, that's a, yes, that would be helpful. Um, what I intend to do uh, next year, the way I have it in my mind, is that we can start out with a weekend course for beginners, which Anya will give. And then I will give a week's course, followed by another three weeks. So people can come for one week, or for four, or for three. So they can come the first week only and go home like what you're doing now, or some of you are staying on for the next four weeks, 
but the whole thing together will be a total of four weeks, which we can either have one week or three weeks or all four. So um, that is the intention, and hopefully we will find a very nice place. I think many people have found out that this place... And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Imagine that you have a beautiful white lotus flower growing in your heart which opens all its petals until it's fully open. And out of the center of that lotus flower comes a golden stream of light which fills you with warmth and joy surrounds you with love so that you can sit in that totally at ease completely safe Now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to all the people here and fill each one with golden light, with warmth, with joy. Surround each one with love. Let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to your parents. Fill them with golden light, with warmth, with joy. Surround them with love. Let them take part in your spiritual life in this way.
And now let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to those people you live with or who are the closest to you. Fill them with that beautiful light, the warmth from your heart. Surround them with your love, not expecting anything in return. Just letting them feel what your spiritual life is creating for you and them. Now think of your friends and let the golden stream of light from the center of your heart reach out to them, filling them with golden light, with warmth and joy, with friendship, surrounding them with your love and care and concern. feeling the closeness you have with them. Now think of your neighbors at home, the people you might work with, those you meet in shops on the street, who are part of your life, now and then, here and there. Let them all take part in the beauty and purity of the love and joy that comes from your heart. Fill them with that golden stream of light. Surround them with it so that they can too feel the love and the warmth. Zoom text enabled. Now think of any one person one, whom you may find difficult. 
and do not block the golden stream of light from your heart. Let it reach out to that person too. Filling him or her with golden light, with warmth, Zoom text one thirty R.